This podcast is brought to you by JBL. Employing the best methods and tools, audio technology is at the core of everything JBL creates. Never straying from a ground-up approach to everything they build, JBL has produced a prolific list of audio achievements, groundbreaking technologies, and revolutionary advances in the art and science of professional audio. JBL, passion for sound and those who create it. Learn more at JBL.com. Hello and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing good. Just, uh, you know, doing shit like trying to buy a new car and figuring out how I can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a fun game to play every morning. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hope you have your coffee. Yeah, plenty of, plenty of. Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield, and for this episode, we chat with deep sea divers Jessica Dobson about David Bowie's 1980 release, Scary Monsters. Awesome. So, Scary Monsters, David Bowie. Um, why did you send me this? Well, I know uh, that this is often referred to as Bowie's last great album. Um, I picked this record because it's constantly one that I come back to anytime I'm making a record. I like that's the standard for me is how experimental can I get with every sound and how the hell did he do that? And like, how the hell was it his most like, his, his almost like, you know, catapult into pop stardom? How was this that record? And so, yeah, this is my favorite Bowie record besides uh, Low and Heroes. Yeah, I mean, so just just to frame it, I mean, this this record came out after the Berlin trilogy and before right. Last Dance. So it's like this, you know, it's arguably a transition record because Let's Dance was mega stardom. You know, that really was like that blue. Right. I mean, he was popular, of course, because we all heard these songs on the radio. It's like Ashes to Ashes and and Fashion. But the production on this record is so amazing. And, you know, the songs are amazing. Like, I love the songs just out in the in the room. They sound great. And you can yeah. sing along to them. But you put on the headphones and you're just like, whoa, still sounds good for a record that was mm-hmm. made in 1980. Absolutely. I think that he gained so many tricks from working with Eno and then, you know, naturally moving in into this record with Visconti, who was already, you know, more on the experimental side with T-Rex. Like it was just such a perfect matchup. And you're right. And headphones, there's so many treats. I like that was one of my favorite things is when you asked me if why I wanted to talk about this record is, you know, I was listening to it in headphones so I could get a more in-depth listen and I hadn't done that for a long time and it's just wild when you hear these every, every sound that you know especially a lot of the percussion just sounds so mutated and and alien and it's hard to understand even how they got those sounds but yeah one of the things I super love about this uh especially on fashion which is one of my favorite songs 
ever. I think it was on the radio a lot when I was younger, and and I and I really just identified with it for a lot of different reasons. But coming back to it after you suggested it, there's the use of effects on this record, and especially in that um, uh, in this song fashion, um, and the time based effects like reverb and um, delays and mm-hmm. the mixing of those two things, like especially on fashion when he goes into this like. Uh, you know, listen to me, talk to me, you know, that whole thing where it sort of gets a lot wetter and it's more of like this reflection. Yes. And it gets wet. And the guitar sound on the left side, there's this, the, the picking part is gets, gets delayed and wet. And it, I just, I think it's just such an interesting thing to listen to us outside of the songs. You know, it's just crafted so beautifully. Totally. Listen to me, listen to me, talk to me. Yeah, I th- I think I love that juxtaposition between there's a lot of very short room sounds on this record, you know, especially like you I love the opener It's No Game where you just like it feels like you're with Bowie in a small room as he's yelling and like I don't know if they stuck a condenser somewhere and just like blasted the hell out of it to get so much compression but just like you feel him yelling as there's that sweet Japanese voice underneath it and then you know, the picking parts on fashion and things like that. Really short slap bag. They probably use a bunch of even tied, you know, whatever delays on it too, but like in phasers and he just was so tasteful. Like it aged well, all of the effects that he used on this record. So is Reverbs on this, I mean, Visconti, they have actually, Eventide, speaking of Eventide, they uh, they released a plug-in called T-Verb, which was um, uh, Tony Visconti's reverb technique making Bo- that he developed making Bowie records, I, I believe. And that was like mm-hmm. this three, three microphone technique staggered in distances um, to create that effect. And it's a very unique sounding effect. I mean, it's really evident on the guitars on this record. Yeah, definitely. I know I, it's, that's something I've gotten into more, you know, just even from listening to records like this, where, you know, it's so easy to just to throw up a mic or two in front of your guitar cab and you forget to experiment with the room or put it behind the guitar amp or whatever it is. But yeah, this is definitely the gold standard for, for getting, untraditional sounds yeah and and aside from the sounds the guitar playing on this record is really uh angular and um you know coupled with that that room reverb and the treatments overall 
is really a really interesting juxtaposition to me as well in terms of like making sure whether it was the intent or not but these you know some of these songs are just really amazing songs and then he just you know throws paint at the cat canvas with this super angular guitar work and yeah it really just it keeps it, it keeps one foot in in this art rock world and one foot in the in the pop space um you know pop used a term used extremely loosely but you you know what I what I mean Oh yeah I I think like you know obviously if this record didn't have any hooks I I don't know if I would love it or if it would be endeared to me as much but it does uh you know ashes to ashes being one of the forerunners for you know one of the best hooks on the record that do 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 bam bam and it's so so much groove on this record and fashion is a strange one because the guitar like it's like almost like the groove is the hook because there's like a lot of weird dissonant harmonics going on with the guitar part uh I, like I don't understand how that became a hit I mean I do because it's so catchy but it's just I've never I don't know anything that is like like that that has been a hit <laughs> do you yeah no no I don't I mean again it's it's it just keeps it so weird and and uh you're right I mean the the groove is just super funky it is completely like a almost like a, a parliament groove or something you know totally like space funk going on on this record So much. Um, there's like this crazy uh, uh, combination of very European sounding things, and then like you'll hear the Bo Diddley beat on some of these tracks. Mm-hmm. So there's like this foot in American uh, roots music, and then there's this foot into the European avant garde. It's it's just such an interesting melding of styles and great songs and sounds. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you you know wouldn't have been deeply affected by spending so much time in in Germany and you know being around all those no wave artists and like he just I don't know he made so many records with so many people like I think about all the stuff he brought to like Iggy Pop Records and he was just and then would steal like I like how he would get his ideas out and then steal from that like I think he wrote a bunch of stuff for Iggy Pop but then took it back I can't remember for what record it was but uh he was just like constantly genre hopping but it all made sense once you know it was put on an album. Do you remember the first time that you you heard this record? Probably on VH1, like for the fashion music video, I believe. Um, or they were doing some special, like when I was a kid, I don't know, in junior high or something. But I didn't actually get into this record until probably one of my... Every, I used to go to Amoeba. I grew up in LA. I used to go to Amoeba Records every single Sunday like once I got out of high school and just like basically lived there all afternoon and listened to records. And this is one of the first Bowie records that I bought. And then I had it on cassette tape too, driving around in my old Honda. But like, yeah, I, I don't know why I gravitated towards this one so much, but any, uh, 
any favorite tracks? I mean, we talked about fashion and ashes to ashes. Any any others? Yeah, I I mean, those are definitely two of my favorites. Uh, I really like how Teenage Wildlife is kind of an extension of Heroes. You know, with the, that that same kind of Ebo esque guitar that that Fripp does, and kind of makes you feel nostalgic for the past. I mean, the opener, just because it's so bizarre and you're catapulted into a completely different world and it just kind of puts me puts me in a different vibe. So I love that one. It's no game. I also really love how he does a reprise on this record at the very end. I'm a big fan of those when when albums feel like thematic and conceptual. And so it's no game. There's kind of a more major major chord vibed out he's more chill and relaxed it feels like he's smoking a cigarette while while singing and so i like how he ends it just as he begins it but chiller silhouettes and shadows watch the revolution no more three steps to heaven Just yeah, it's, I mean, you know, making records, you, you have you have a, a song which is a seed and, and it's no matter what how you've sort of crafted it, you know, you get in the room with people and, and it evolves and it can become something else and then you, you, you can end up with versions that are equally valid. Um, totally, you know, and it, and it, and they may serve different purposes in storytelling. I mean, I, I I would argue that you know that that craft has um, been diminished to some degree today with the culture of of singles and Spotify and one songs and mm. like in terms of shaping a record with using different versions of a song. Yeah, I was watching this this documentary last night on Connie Plank. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. You would love it. Um, so do you know who he is? I don't. So Connie Plank was this German producer who grew up outside of Cologne, grew up in a musical family, but decided at one point as an adult to move to the country outside of the city, and he built this recording studio. But, you know, he was responsible for Noi and Kraftwerk. Oh, okay. And... Um, a slew of, of of German bands. He did like the first Scorpions record when they were like the total prog band. Uh, you know, one of the what reminded me of it was that they were going through his notes, going through tapes. It's his son kind of trying to like understand his father because he died when he was thirteen. So yeah, um, 
he goes back and and they they're going through the the notes about the you know track sheets and stuff and he had, he would draw these um he would map the album out not in just only in terms of um the sequence and stuff but and where it would sit on the LP but and per side but like he would draw this these arcs of like what was the shape of the record and like in terms of you know whatever they were using as the criteria but it it had a shape mm. you know and and I that really struck me. I was like, man, that is so cool. And they were really, you know, he was really thinking about it in terms of a, a you know, a painting as a whole, you know? Yeah. I just, I, I had a memory that I don't think I've ever talked about this um, outside of, of friends and family, but I, it's, it happened a long time ago. Um, it was when I was signed to Atlantic records as a solo artist, just under my own name. And I was I had heard that Tony Visconti was a fan of the demos that I had cut at the time that we were trying to make a record and he was interested in producing. And I was so, I was, he, I still am, but at the time I was a very big T-Rex getting into, you know, all of the box sets and early stuff that Mark Bolin did. And, and of course loved, you know, all the, the big electric records too, but like, um, it didn't ever come to fruition. I don't know why, cause I was definitely very interested, but that was pretty sweet. You know, one other cool thing on this is that, you know, um, you know, Pete Townsend plays on this record. Oh, that's right. Uh, which one? Uh, later on in the record, right? Because you're young. That's right. What was the one? Didn't uh, Tom Verlaine play on this record, too? He wrote one of the songs on this record. Um, Kingdom Come. And, of course, this has this has Fripp on it and... Um, Oh, you know, the other thing I thought was really cool, and if you listen to it, you kind of hear it, you know, Teenage Wildlife has, um, well, it has Fripp, it has Carlos Alomar, who was on several Bowie records, Chuck Hammer, who plays all that crazy guitar on um, several of these tunes. I think a lot of people think that's Fripp, but it's that guy, Chuck Chuck Hammer. Yeah, I think I was corrected on that recently, where I thought it was Fripp. Yeah, you're right. He uh, Fripp does play on on at least one of I know he plays on Teenage Wildlife but um but Roy Bitten from the E Street Band uh mm-hmm. he plays piano um on Teenage Wildlife and it it if you listen to it from that perspective of like the E Street Band you really hear it I, I just was like huh such a trip man like you really feel this influence uh and and a very east coast music thing i think they cut half of this record at the power station and half of it at good earth which was in uh yeah you know in england but um i'm trying to think of like records currently that have these kind of larger than life studio musicians or that play you know just as baked into you know in bruce springsteen's band and it's like it they, they can play you know, to stadiums and play very relatable things, but also can get really, I guess it depends on who you're working with. Like Bowie was so experimental, but like today I think a lot of studio musicians play it so safe and maybe that's the producer that's just asking them to sit in that realm. But there's like not many players like that that are playing on like a lot of records, you know? I think it takes a lot of self-confidence to let somebody else have a voice. Yeah. On your own record, right? You know, he was always glad to let people shine, you know? Mm. I love that. And I think a lot of records that we we love have elements of that where, you know, you really get to 
hear that person play, you know? Yeah. Totally. I feel I hear that actually now thinking of it like on more like Kendrick Lamar's more like jazz experimental records. Uh they're wild and or actually also too on some of the feist stuff like Chili Gonzalez and and just yeah, they have a, a larger than life voice on it and it works very well. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.